0: Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast, brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales entrepreneur leadership coach keynote speaker one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for gravitas
1: we remain in the midst of the pandemic yes we're all living the realities of the coronavirus crisis And we are working from home. We're in isolation. We're in quarantine. Life as we once knew it has completely changed. But this also offers a great opportunity. Not only is this a tremendous opportunity for us to step up and lead and make this the most exhilarating leadership experience of our lifetime. It's an opportunity to challenge the norm. The day-to-day rulebook of routines and corporate playbook, that's out the window right now. So let's use this time as an opportunity to think about where we're going. What do we want for the rest of our lives? Two different perspectives, whether it's a vision for a company, for our business, for our team, for our industry, or whether it's for ourselves, our own business personal vision for our life. What does that look like? What's our legacy look like? Where do we want to be in 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 years time? This is a great opportunity to step back away from normal life. Let's face it, we have no choice and really spend some time mapping that out. I can't think of anybody better to help us with this than that disruptor himself John Anderson. John is the author of the book, Replace Retirement, where he challenges the retirement model. And in his words, he says, don't retire, refire. And right now we're questioning what retirement could look like. The stock market is down. Maybe that pot of money that we want to have at a certain point in time is not going to be there. But that's okay. There's an opportunity to rethink that model, and John is the perfect guy to help us through that. John is a lifelong business strategist and entrepreneur. His entrepreneurial spirit has guided much of his professional life, starting in the office furniture business. He was the first Gazelle's business coach to work with Vern Harnish. And now this organization is considered to be one of the leading executive coaching organizations. John is an active corporate speaker and coach. And he has had equity in a variety of entrepreneurial companies, including the CEO Advantage, Dogtopia, Visby, and Exponential Advisor. In the late 90s, John founded the Detroit Chapter of the Entrepreneurs' Organization, recognized by Michigan's Future 50 Award, Today's Workplace of Tomorrow Award, and in Crane's list of 40 under 40. He served on the Leadership Oakland Board, the Oakland County Business Roundtable, and is considered one of the most networked entrepreneurs in the region. Please welcome John Anderson.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited about this.
1: John Anderson, what is your story? Tell us, please.
2: Uh, I'll start post-college. So I went to work for IBM, which was a recommendation by my father because he had worked 37 years for the same company. And that was kind of the path we took back then. And I ultimately left IBM. At the time I left the company, they were the most profitable company in the world. So I was really working at the best company in the world at that time. And I left because I had married into a successful entrepreneurial family. And in conversations with my father-in-law, I said, I think I could run a business myself. And he was open to helping me with that. And after a couple different uh, false starts, uh, I ended up, purchasing 50% of Gorman's Business Interiors, which was a Hayworth office furniture dealership in Southeast Michigan. And we also had a location in Midland, Michigan. And took that company from two and a half million in sales to about 15 million in sales. And the real... Uh, growth in that business was my own leadership in the sense that now that I'd gone from being a salesman at IBM to running a business, I really knew nothing about that. And my business partner, Bernie Murray, who's still working there today in his mid-90s, was my mentor. And uh, the other thing I did was read lots of magazines and publications. And Fast Company was out and Inc. Magazine I was flipping through Inc. Magazine, I see a picture of Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, and I knew that Edison Ford and Firestone from Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, had done um, mastermind groups. And the caption under their picture was the birthing of giants. And it said, every year we invite 60 entrepreneurs from around the world to attend this program at the MIT Enterprise Forum. And I applied for that and was accepted At that program, I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Vern Harnish, who later went on to write uh, the Rockefeller Habits and, um, or sort of mastering the Rockefeller Habits, and then more recently, Scale Up. And Vern to me was like Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm like, this is the guy I need to study and understand if I'm going to be successful in business. And so this relationship launched, this was almost 25 years ago. It would be about 25 years ago. And so from Vern, who was my business coach, I started to learn about all these different practices and tools and, and ways to make you more effective as a leader and a leadership team. So I decide that this office furniture dealership business is not my long-term path. And Vern asked me, what do you think you're going to do? And I said, well, I was actually thinking of getting into business coaching. Now, this is over 20 years ago. So unlike today, where everybody's a business coach, that was a rare thing 20 years ago. And uh, I was going to work with Jack Stack, who wrote The Great Game of Business and has uh, teaches people open book management. And Vern said, well, wait a minute. Why don't you become my first coach? I'm going to take the program we have at MIT on the road and I'm going to call it the um, Master of Business Dynamics and you can be the first coach. And I said, great. So Vern flew in the town and we went on Uh, meetings each and every day. And Vern would present and I would take notes. And then at the end, they'd say, yeah, we want to do this. Who's going to be our coach? And they're like, oh, John's going to be your coach. And so that was kind of like my coaching training, if you will. And it was like day three, I guess. And he said, you're going to do the presentation tomorrow. And I'm like, no, no, I can't do it. I was too nervous. So he gave me one more day on day four. He said, no, you're going to do it today. You'll do great. And so I started presenting, and by like 11 o'clock at the break, Vern said, I'm going to catch a flight and go home. You got this handled. And that was my sort of inception into business coaching. Now, from that point on, I continued to read, study with Vern. He ended up creating some tools we could use. And uh, my business partner and I, out of that, created a company called the CEO Advantage. And it was really founded on Vern Harnish's Mastering the Rockefeller Habits uh, Jim Collins, who had just released Good to Great. We saw him present Good to Great before the book went uh, on the public market. And then Patrick Lynchione, he was the third part of our triangle. And at that time, Patrick had only re- released one book. And I used to get Patrick co- to come into town and present for us for free, he gets one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to key, keynote now, and he actually facilitated two of our annual planning sessions in San Francisco. So we were very lucky and fortunate to have Vern Harness, Jim Collins, and Patrick Lencioni as kind of our triangle. Jim, by the way, was the only one who said we didn't we would pay a fee to. Vern every month and we'd pay a fee to patrick every month we did uh jim said you didn't have to pay me anything just make sure my content is called my content don't repackage it and um so that was the foundation of our business coaching practice that evolved out of my office furniture dealership and i've been doing that for 20 plus years um and then more recently you know got into publishing
1: That's great. So you have a a tremendous depth of knowledge and experience when it comes to business leadership of your own and then coaching others. Leaders today are trying to figure out how to lead during the pandemic. We're in the middle of a crisis. One of the things that we often talk about in authentic leadership is the need to have vision. And it's very hard to have a positive vision when you're in the middle of a crisis. What advice would you give to the leaders out there regarding developing a vision to get out of this crisis and to motivate the business and the team?
2: Uh, It's a great question. And I have a, a number of suggestions around this. Um. The first and foremost part, uh, and you're using the word, right, vision, is for myself, could be different for others. Some may be using pictures or thoughts, uh, but I actually find words to be very powerful. So I would encourage leaders to sit down and write, what is the vision for the company? Um, And I think 10 years is a good time frame. Uh, Although I don't have a problem going longer than that, I do have a little bit of a reservation going shorter. The reason why I think a 10-year vision is so powerful is it's far enough out there that you don't know exactly how you're going to get there. And yet it's not so far out that it seems like kind of crazy. Like we all know we're going to be 10 years into the future. And so sitting down and saying, what would the ideal vision look like for your company and the team of people you work with 10 years hence look like? And describe it not in a linear fashion, but in an exponential fashion. And if the word exponential kind of uh, tongue ties you a little bit, then think of it in an ideal. Ideally, where would we want our company to be 10 years hence? Where we want our customer relationships to be? Where we want our employees to be? What does that look like? Um, not the steps of how we get there, but simply what does it look like? One of my mentors, and I have a number of them, is Ari Widenswake from Zingerman's Delhi. And Zingerman's has done a great job. And Ari's really a, a leader in this particular area in writing vision. So you can go and either read his books, which by the way, are tremendous, but there's about 650 pages and it's small print. So Ari's book take a take a bit of work to get through and they're so content rich that you want to like underline everything he writes Um, but he's fortunate in the sense that since he's from the food business he treats his books like a cookbook and then you can buy these little recipes which are little sections of the book and he does I think maybe four or five on visioning. Some are on personal visioning, some are on business visioning. So I learned a lot about my visioning from Ari. He's not the only source but he did a great job, the most masterful I'd seen, of writing a 10-year vision for that company that has tremendous detail and depth. And so that's the same process I've gone through for my own company. And even today, I continue to do that and write in writing a vision just for the end of 2020. Now, the end of 2020, of course, is more linear, but I but it comes from this bigger, expanded 10-year vision that I have um, in terms of where we're going and what we're going to look like despite the upheaval and changes that are happening right now real time.
1: There's, I know that there are leaders out there right now, they're probably listening to this, and maybe there's two thoughts running through their head. One would be, oh, I already have a vision. It's to be the world-class manufacturer of X widget and satisfy, or oh, be the choice, the best choice to our customer. You know, every, certainly every automotive company I've ever dealt with has got a vision statement like that, which honestly to me is meaningless. It's not, you cannot attach to that. You cannot emotionally attach to that. It's not a feeling, a state of somewhere or or something that you will be in the future. So help us understand, you know, what, what is great content for a vision? How do you get your mind in the right place to develop a vision? That's going to be so powerful that you will just feel the pull toward it.
2: Well, it's again, you're, you're, you're right on this topic. It's so powerful, uh, and it's not easy. That's the challenge in this. So the reason why one of the things, uh, one of the reasons that business coaching took off is that uh, because of the work of Lynchioni and Collins and Harnish and others, they're not the only ones. But Collins did such a great job, right? He said, you got to have a hag, And this was back in his uh, Built the Last book. And he said that great companies have a big, hairy, audacious goal. And he said that a BHAG has to be 10 to 30 years, thinking beyond uh, just tactics and strategy, but it really is visionary. You don't really know how you're going to get there, a 70 to 50% probability of success. Companies really latched on to that, and Vern put it in his one-page plan, and we put it in our one-page plan. But it became more of an exercise, to your point, let's just fill that sentence out. Let's describe some point in the future or kind of an idealistic way we want to be as a business in a one sentence, one liner. And I do think that's valuable so people can remember it. And remember, he used his example was, we're going to get a man to the, you know, the, the John F. Kennedy. We're going to get a man on the moon at the end of the, by the end of the decade." And so it was simple to understand and so on. That became kind of like a, a checkbox on this page we gotta get that done. We gotta get that done. What you're talking about, and what we you and I understand, is that no, 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 you gotta go deeper into that. And Collins did bring that up, but I think everybody kinda of ignored it. He called it an envisioned future. So what he was suggesting is if you wrote this detailed envisioned future that I was discussing earlier, like Ari did, then you could come up with that one line statement for people to remember. So it's really and, and I'll talk about this again later, but it's really Stephen Covey uh, had the four quadrants of time management, and he said quadrant one is important and urgent, quadrant two is important, but not urgent, and in quadrant three and four, we can sort of ignore They're just busy stuff that doesn't get you anywhere. When I work with leadership teams, I tell everybody I'm sitting at the table because they're all the executives, what got you into this room, and the same with our listeners, what got you into the room was your ability to execute in quadrant one the ability to handle both urgent and important items and to really get through that fast and not be messed up in quadrant three and four. They weren't doing nonsense stuff. They weren't, you know, checking Facebook posts and so on. They're really good at, there's an issue, we're going to attack the issue. However, Kavi said in his book, um, The Seven Habits, that all progress, and I want to be clear on this, not some progress, all progress happens in quadrant two which are the things that are important but not urgent. The vision you and I I are talking about, that's quadrant two. You have to sit down and it takes iteration after iteration of defining what this future vision looks like and it's hard, it's a lot of thinking. So I have found by practice I've gotten better at it and I enjoy it more and maybe because I've written a book it's also easier to write. Um, but with a client recently, the way we went about it, um, so this little prescription uh, is we started by having everybody read Ari's little uh, recipe on visioning. So they read Ari's vision they they read how sort of visions are developed and his, the process he recommends. And then I said, why don't you guys on the whiteboard, I'll, I'll write it down. Just tell me, why do you think his vision so important? Impactful, you know why why is it powerful? How did it touch you? and they use words like emotion and it was real, and they felt like they're part of the team and all these different descriptors, so now we had those descriptors as we would want our vision to look the same. Then I had them do another exercise I won't get into all the detail of now, but basically describe for me what the employee experience would be like, describe for me what the customer experience would be like, describe for me what our financials would look like, and so on, so that we had sort of painted this broad brush framework, if you will. And then we stopped for the day, that was, we were probably three and a half hours, four hours in, we stopped, we let that incubate, and then we came back a couple weeks later and I actually took responsibility for it because I enjoy it. And I got on the keyboard, and we did it on the big screen, and I took all those notes and ideas, and I started building out the sections, you know, paragraphs into each of these sections, so they had the beginning of a written vision. And then their job was to take that and go through it again and enhance it and enrich it, then share it with their expanded leadership team, get their input, then share it with their board of directors and get their input. And then finally, when they felt really like they owned it and they were excited to share it, then go forward with their entire employees, you know, the whole company and share that vision. So those were the steps that we took. Um... If you can't write it yourself, and I understand that's hard for some people, then um, get someone to help you write it. But again, go through this process because otherwise you're going to always get sucked back into that quadrant one thing, the urgent and important, which feels comfortable and familiar. And of course, in a time of crisis, we're going to go to what's comfortable and familiar, except nothing right now is comfortable and familiar. So it's really the quadrant two the vision, if you will, the things that are important but not urgent, that keep you focused on going forward And not falling back. Yeah,
1: well, that's great. Great advice, John. And I think that there's some leaders out there right now. They're going, what are they talking about? A vision in 10 years? I've got to deal with this crisis. You know, we're in crisis mode right now. But this is where I see what we're going through right now is a tremendous opportunity to think differently because everything has changed. Our lives have changed. Our routines have changed. There is no real corporate playbook for a pandemic, so this is a great opportunity to perhaps sit back with your team and really start to generate a vision statement of where you're going to be in 10 years that will pull you toward it. I love, there's some vision statements that, that really resonate with me and I use them as examples to help people think through this because it's not this one statement that you throw on a PowerPoint and, you know, there's a few posters up in the office and you're done. I like Starbucks to nurture the human spirit, one cup of coffee at a time. You know, they didn't They didn't just wake up one day and say, oh yeah, we're going to sell X number of cups of coffee and open X number of stores. You know, it's much more, it's deeper, much more meaningful and it guides who they are as a company. And the other one I love is a fairly uh, new company. It's called Canoe. It's the old Avelocity. It's an electric vehicle company out of California. And they want to, and I quote, Free people of the tyranny of ownership of a vehicle, you know how powerful is that. So I see this as tremendous opportunity for people to to really sit back and develop that vision. But let's let's come in more near term. Um, so we are in a crisis mode. What advice would you give to leaders on how? They lead in terms of the leadership style that they employ right now? Because we've heard that there is a tendency to move into command and control, but we know that we need to connect with people emotionally at a much deeper level now. We have to create psychological safety for people. So, faced with this crisis right now, what advice would you give leaders today?
2: I have, I guess, three different thoughts on this. the first and obvious one, which is exactly what we're doing right now, I'm, um, uh, Patrick Lincioni has put on a weekly podcast. It's actually designed for coaches and advisors. But I'm seeking that out and then uh, did one with Chip Connolly And so this idea that I need to go out and learn from others what they're doing and how they're navigating through it. So that's a, the first and obvious one. So it's kind of ramp up the education two, and again, this is from what I've been listening to and and learning from, uh, is there's a lot of recommendation to communicate more frequently, to uh, give employees an update each and every week that is transparent in the sense that, uh, and uh, Vern was using this a week ago saying, don't do the sandwich, which is like, good news then bad news and good news (laughs) i think he called it a a shit a shit sandwich or something (laughs) Uh, but i like that it was a good it was a good metaphor and i liked it he was suggesting that first you start off with what isn't great and then move into what is great so i like that that was a good suggestion it resonated with me maybe it'll resonate with others then i think of uh lynchione who's so transparent um that I really, I've always been drawn to him for the last 20 years. Of all the presenters I've seen, he seems the most genuine and transparent. And then, you know, later, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago or so, I got introduced to Brene Brown. And that's her whole thing, right? You have to be vulnerable and transparent. So that would be my next recommendation is what can I do as a leader to be a little more vulnerable and transparent of these are my concerns not in a in a griping bitching kind of way but in a true humility way and then these are some things that i'm optimistic about um, so if we want to kind of share the the, the bad and the good um, i would on a Sort of the third wave of this thing. So those, so we got what's coming out of you know various recommendations and reading and listening. Then what are tools that other effective leaders are using? Um, And then my so again communication, the, the transparent, open, vulnerable communication. The third one that I'm most at home with and comfortable with is that I am. I had been on a process of developing my own personal leadership skills for the last really 10 years or so, which led to writing the book. I believe that it's, that is what's helping me so much today is that I have a process and a routine I follow and I just keep following that. And it gives me confidence. So not only do I have a 10-year vision, which we were talking about earlier, a written vision, which is dated for July 1st, 2026. So, you know, mine's already in motion. So I know what that time looks like. I spent time writing what this year looks like, and how I'm going to use the pandemic as a catalytic mechanism. And then finally, I have activities and behaviors I do every day to keep my confidence. So in my case, pre-pandemic, I felt like if I was going to go in and meet with my customers, because I don't have employees, right, I, I, have, I have clients, if I'm going to go in and do a workshop with a client, I have to go through this two-hour routine that kind of gets me ready for the day. It includes mental, physical, and spiritual exercises so that I'm game on, I'm, I'm suited up for the day. I created that for me as a as an advisor because I can't show up in front of com- Um, Excuse me, in front of clients with my confidence shaken, with frustration, with untied issues, um, with lots of noise in the background. Otherwise, I can't be fully focused on them. So I created that as a client delivery mechanism before this. Now I'm realizing it fits really well today because I have this whole process and philosophy that I need to sort of game up every day or suit up, I guess is the better uh, description. And now I'm getting to apply it in a bigger game. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Would you share some of that routine with us, John?
2: I will and, and... just before I do that, one of the, and so every one of the, in this two hour process, one of the practices I do is writing. And uh, I journal and then I write. So the journaling is kind of just um, uh, kind of gratitude and things I'm thankful for and just kind of get my mind in the right place. It can really be any thought. Um, the writing part is I'm either writing a blog or I'm writing the vision. I'm always writing something every day on the computer. And, um, In my writing, last week, I came to this insight. And so this is real new, and I'm going to do a video series on this. So you're the first person I'm sharing this with, other than my business partners and my wife, and um, in the the first public domain. Because, uh, so I'll, I'll back up in my story earlier, I did a really accelerated one, I talked about Vern Harnish and going to MIT, and, and he was kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi for me. When I met him, I'm like, oh, I got to study this guy. Like, I want to learn the ways of his force, if you will. About, and so that's been a 25-year journey. About, oh, it's almost 10 years ago now, somewhere between eight and 10 years ago, I met Peter Diamandis. And Peter had just written his book, Abundance, Why the Future is Better Than You Think. And I sat in that audience and I'm like, this is the next, this is Yoda. Like, I need to know this guy. I need to become friends with him. I need to study his ways. I need to hang out with him. I got to figure out how I'm going to become friends with this guy. He was listed by Forbes as one of the 50 most influential people in the world. So this was no easy feat, but I accomplished it. So he's he considers me a friend today and I certainly consider him one. Peter says that you're either going to be disrupted by technology or you're going to be a disruptor, which led to the idea of writing this book, The Reflash Retirement. So I didn't want to be disrupted. I wanted to be a disruptor. So all this is out of this concept, what he calls the expo- you know, exponential trends, right? Ray Kurzweil is kind of behind that. And so there's all these information and data is on this this technology uptrend accelerating almost like a hockey stick fair enough that's what an exponential curve looks like last week i was sitting in and the pandemic is essentially if you look at all the curves on it right it's a hockey stick it, and they're trying to get it back into a bubble and then flatten it back down right flatten the bubble so this thing starts off really almost like innocuous it, it's like it's not even showing up we can ignore it it's not a big deal yeah it's happening over in china but it's not going to affect us and then it starts this exponential doubling rate and it starts doubling 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 till now it looks like a hockey stick so in my book title i wrote replace retirement living your legacy in the exponential age so i threw this label out called the exponential age I would suggest to our audience that we have officially entered the exponential age with the pandemic as the catalytic mechanism that launched it. So it's been around. Some of us have been aware of it. it. A lot of us haven't. So this idea of thinking linearly versus exponentially is really going to become the Achilles heel not for 95% of the population, but the 5% of us who are leaders and entrepreneurs, we have got to learn how to think exponentially. Stephen Covey gave us a little insight into that quadrant one and quadrant two. Essentially what he was saying, quadrant two is how you create time to think exponentially when you're, when you're not dealing with the urgent, but you're dealing with the important. So it's like that's the the new era we're in we're we have officially locked into that and if you don't know how to think exponentially or put time in quadrant two now's the time to build the muscle does that make sense
1: yes makes perfect sense
2: okay so how do i get into the sort of exponential mindset each and every day that was the question you asked so i wake up in the morning and the first thing i do as soon as my eyes open is i say a prayer and I go through a whole sort of prayer sequence that I learned years ago. And uh, I, I'm just laying there with my eyes closed. And it follows more or less the same framework every time. And I pray for myself and my wife. And then I pray for all kinds of friends and extended family. And it's kind of like almost perfect. It's so long that if I get out of order, I got to kind of start it over again. <laughs> so, but I, I do that every day. Then the next thing we started doing um, is meditating. So right after the prayer, and my wife, now that we're home every day, we're doing it together. So we spend 10 to 15 minutes in meditation. And it's a guided meditation on an app. I use Calm. So there's lots of guides on that. So so I'm growing my meditation. Then I head downstairs, and I begin doing my first uh, set of. And I don't like. I've never been. I know lots of people love working out. I don't love working out. I've always struggled with it. I know it's important to have the quality of life I want, but I don't get joy from it. So I hit the floor and I do push-ups and I I do. Um, uh, three sets of 20 push-ups, three sets of 33 um, crunches, and three sets of 20 squats, and that's kind of my thing right now. Um, so that I always do some sort of physical workout. Now I don't do all of those in in order. I do the first set, and then I go into my office, and I've always I've got um. I've got spiritual kind of guidebooks and then I've got business books and so on and then I get the journal out and I put the date on and I have a couple different things I track so I, I do the count on that like meditation now I'm up to like 176 days or whatever it is so I track things like that and then I start writing. And again, I mentioned earlier, my default mechanism is just gratitude. Thank you so much for this day. Thank you for my health. Thank you for our lifestyle, et cetera. Thank you for this beautiful home, on and on and on. So sometimes it's real insight. Other times it's always gratitude. And then I read, I have a kind of like a little spiritual book. And then I read, um, something from, um, another book from, uh, it's called The Grapevine. It's, um, It's a a sobriety kind of tool that AA has, and then I do another workout set, and then I come back because I don't like the work, so I got to get the workout out of the way, (laughs) and then I do something fun. Now, for someone else, it might be the opposite. They might do the journaling or something, and then the workout, so I'm I'm always, I'm playing off of these habit-forming tools, and then I I, I read the Bible, Uh, because I've read thousands of books. I figured I might as well read that one, so I read a little bit of the Bible each day, and then journal from that and then i have a business book and i mentioned ari's books sometimes those i'm into um but i am very selective on what's the book i'm reading and writing from so i want to sort of draw content from that i do sort of my final set now my exercise is uh, the thank god for that and then maybe brew some coffee and then finish the journaling then i go and i start to do the writing you know i mentioned earlier so i get on and i work on either a um a blog, or writing a vision, or whatever I'm writing on in the book when I was doing that. So there's some writing. And then I write a um, personal note of gratitude to somebody, a handwritten note. And I do that because years and years ago, I was working with the CEO of Domino's Pizza, David Brandon, and he taught me the value of writing personal handwritten thank you notes. Here he is running dominoes, for God's sake, and he would write me a personal note thanking me for meeting with him. Like he's the guy, right, the important guy, and he's writing me a note. So I'm like, well, if he has time to write a personal note, I certainly have time to write a note. So because of that influence, I have picked up this habit of writing notes every day. So just a little handwritten note. And then, uh, then I jump in the shower after all that. So that whole cycle takes me about two hours, fair enough. Uh, and then I can head off to my meeting or whatever. So in this case, the meeting is sitting down with you. Um, so that's the, that's the process I take every day that's designed out of this greater tool so those are those are my daily alignment habits that comes from my legacy map which is a tool i developed so i have a whole plan for my life and in order to become the person i've defined in my life plan i have to do these things on a daily basis um One other piece of information, I do that five days a week, not seven days a week. However, as I develop habits like meditation, because that's the newest one, that one I am doing seven days a week. I find if you're trying to cement a habit, this is my personal experience, is it's not 21 days. You basically got to go 90 days. If it's something you enjoy, journaling was the very first one I ever took on. Journaling was relatively, I, I found... And there's a London study in my book I mentioned. It says 66 days. But somewhere in that 90 days, approximately around the 66th day, it went from being something I got to remember to do to something I enjoy doing. Mm. Fair enough? Now, the only habit when I, I touched on earlier exercising is not something to this day I enjoy doing. I only enjoy it because I enjoy the benefits from it. But journaling, writing the personal notes, um, blogging, all these other habits, the meditation, uh, the prayer, these are things that I do not because I have to do, but because I enjoy them, almost like brushing your teeth. And so I went from seven days a week, then I backed it off to six days a week because my wife was kind of teasing me. Can we like, you know, spend time in bed before you go off and do all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I could take a day off. And then I realized, oh, I could take the weekend off. So it's so cemented. in. again, some of these are more than 10 year habits. Um, so that, that's kind of the routine of the morning.
1: That's quite a routine. That's a, that's a time commitment, but it puts you, you're, you're, you're in the right place, your, your head, your, your mind, your heart, everything is in the right place, right? At, at that, after two hours.
2: And that's, you know, so many of the books we read, lots of people talk about this. And this is the fundamental in the Rockefeller Habits. Vern has just three habits. One is your top five, one of five. The second one is rhythm. And the third is metrics, you know, measurable outcomes. And the top five, one of five, which is habit number one, I resonated with Vern because I had experienced this in my 20s when I was listening to Earl Nightingale and he did a whole bunch of series about the strangest secret and so on and he brought this up and it basically was Rockefeller and Carnegie had studied under Ivy Lee in the short version on this and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Ivy Lee's story but he basically had these guys say you can't have 25 things on on your list. You got to have five or less. They need to be prioritized prioritized from one to five and you need to start on number one before you go to number two and so on. I even heard Warren Buffett share the same story, right? He was with his pilot or something. His pilot was bemoaning all the things he needs to do and he said, all right, I'll make up the name, Bob, Bob the pilot, write down for me all the things you need to accomplish in order of how they have to be accomplished and and not just in terms of it's the easiest thing to knock off but the most important. What's number one, two, three? So he got his list done. He said, okay, get rid of everything below number five. Throw it away. Just focus on those five. So even Warren Buffett. So this is not a new tool. It's not a new rule. And I was enamored with that. I started practicing it in my late 20s when I ran the office furniture company. And I practice it today. So that made sense. And it's like, well, if morning's my best time, then I ought to start out with the first most important thing. So I thought prayer was the first most important thing. And then the second most important, well, I think maybe meditation's the second most important thing. So even the order of that morning as it grew from 10 minutes to two hours was basically aligned with that idea. What's gonna be first most important, second most important, and so on? Before I go engage with a client or whatever the next activity is, before my day starts to get all crazy and frantic and urgent and so on, I need to make sure that I know what's most important in my life and that I made it a priority in that day before I go on to anything else. I think that's what leaders do. I think that's what that goes back to my, uh, my insight of last week is that we're in this new age. If you don't know how to do it, you need to figure it out and do it soon. Otherwise, you're going to get overwhelmed by fear and change and all this stuff because the world's moving at this hockey stick rate and it can be quite overwhelming.
1: Well, and... We both know that you can't lead others until you know how to lead yourself. And you're talking about how you lead yourself. I think that many people, not just leaders, but many people out there today will have to rethink retirement. The stock market is down. It's crashing horribly left and right and we can look at it and say, oh my gosh, you know, maybe people are close to retirement. I, you know, I have this, this number or this, this pot of money that I'm supposed to have or a time in my life that I'm supposed to just stop working and and do nothing which, you know, you and I have talked about this before, that's, uh, that's something that I, I could not get my mind around. I, I was not going to move live my life to get to a certain point or a part of money and then do nothing. You know, I, I had a vision for my life for what I wanted to do. I wanted to form this business and I'm doing it. And I did it before I retired and walked away from my, my corporate role. But there are people out there right now are you know, maybe thinking, oh no, because of this pot of money that I have or don't have because of what's happening in the stock market, maybe I'll have to work longer in this corporate job because they're on this, this path of this is what I'm supposed to do. But what I absolutely loved about your book is that you want to talk about being a disruptor, you challenged that whole mindset that so many people are on that path. So this could be a great opportunity for people to sit back and think about the vision that they have, not only for their business, but for their own life. So tell us a little bit about the book, John, and how you challenge that thinking.
2: Well, thank you. And, and everything we've talked about so far has been leading up to this. And I, was, I knew it would be hard not to talk about this subject as we were sharing. And so I've been peppering all through our conversation, little tidbits. But I I started with the story of Peter Diamandis and, you know, his challenge was either you're going to be disrupted or you're going to be a disruptor. When I first, and this is so appropriate for today, right? Because we're all being disrupted. So when I first heard this, uh, now remember, I've had years, I've had, uh, I've been in this program, he has a program called Abundance 360. It's every January in Beverly Hills. And we just finished, I think, year eight. And it's a 25-year journey. So I got exposed to this year after year after year. So I had a lot of time to think about this. So when I first got exposed to this idea of disruption, I went into fear. Everybody does. Well, I'm not going to get disrupted. This, this can't happen to me. I wouldn't even know how to manage it. It's all the things you were just sharing. Like, it's overwhelming. I, I, I don't really know what to do. I'm just going to ignore it. Then as time went on and I thought about this disruption thing and technology, I said, well, Okay. I can see how Ford Motor Company is going to be disrupted with autonomous vehicles and electric cars and so on. If they don't figure this out, they may not have a business anymore, that the the technology and the changes that are coming and the uh, that they'll, they'll get bypassed, right? They won't know how to adapt quick enough. So I can see how Ford's going to get disrupted. They better watch out. And then I let some more time go by and I said, how would I get disrupted? So as I thought about that, I used the example, and I know it won't work for all listeners, but hopefully a lot of them, Uh, there's a character on the old Star Trek series called Data. There was various versions of Star Trek, but Data was artificial intelligence. He was basically a robot, a very sophisticated one. He was human-like, and he was run by artificial intelligence. And data, for those of us who are familiar with the character, was like a trusted member of that team. He wasn't just a technology that they used. He was human-like in his relationship with those members. They counted on data to be there for them, and they they protected data if he was at risk so he was he was so human like he was treated like human but the cool thing about data and this is where i saw my disruption is imagine there's an ai technology that already exists you know like watson ibm's watson computer and others that could be the coach if you will the business coach so instead of having a real meeting you show up at a virtual meeting and then this tie this artificial intelligence is answering questions for your team and it's appraising things and it's telling you everything about the history of your nuts and bolts business and all the projections going forward and stock market trends and it's doing all this real-time analysis so it can give you all this stuff right I can't do that so that's kind of disrupting to me and then because it's we do the meeting in virtual reality you could skin it as Jim Collins or Einstein or Abraham Lincoln, you pick what he wants you want him to look like. So now it's not, you know, I'm not, I don't have the intelligence this thing does. It can look like somebody who's a really, you know, George Washington, you pick it. Somebody, you know, you, you admire. So what do we need John Anderson in the room for? And just to put kind of like the icing on the cake or the nail in the coffin, if you will, um It's like $95. Like, I don't charge $95, but it's so ubiquitous that you get this technology and so on. So I said, I can see how I can be disrupted. So I don't just see how people are going to get disrupted and Ford's going to get disrupted. John John Anderson's way of life could be disrupted. And so I started to think about it and say, okay, and I mentioned Earl Nightingale before. He was a he was a mentor to me in my 20s. I've listened to his program thousands of times. So uh, Earl would always say, there's a field of diamonds right in front of you. Don't go searching all over the world for it. They're right in your backyard. So I said, okay, well, I'm a baby boomer and I don't think this retirement thing doesn't really work for me. And I think there's others out there. So if there's approximately 80 million boomers, and let's assume using a statistical bell curve that 20% of them will resonate with my message. That's how you and I got together, right? Jan's like, I totally get it. I'm on board with you. Show me this path. Then um, if I were really to make a penetration, it'd be 1.6 million. So I'll take take the 20% or 16 million baby boomers who would resonate with this message. If they simply heard it, they're like, I get it. I want it. Show me the way. And the 10% of that group, or 1.6 million would actually sign on and be a follower of this. I call it a movement. They would get on board with the movement. So that became my BHAG, if you will, or moonshot, is that we're going to, by January 1st, 2026, we'd reach 1.6 million boomers. It doesn't have to be all boomers. It's really people between 45 and 65. So some boomers are, are older now. So now we've got this idea we're going to replace retirement we're going to change the existing paradigm of retirement to one in which you are contributing and working all the way through although on your terms so in the book i use myself as an example essentially one and And somebody recently just asked me this. So one of the things I'll I'll kind of share my year uh, from a planning point of view, I take the month of February off, I take the month of August off, and I probably, if you take holidays and so on, I extend it another month. So I take about three months off a year. And um, so that still gives me plenty of time to work with clients. And all my clients understand this. They know this in in our whole design of our program. And so on the month off in February, I'm a big time snowmobiler. It's one of my passions. And so this season, I snowmobiled about 9,000 miles. But clearly I'm very passionate. Other people have other passions. That's my passion. So while I was snowmobiling, I'm up in Quebec and this guy said, are you retired? I get that question a lot because here I am snowmobiling for three weeks. And I'm like, no, yeah, sort of. Like, because I, I designed it myself. So what I found, And and in my book, I talk about this. I used to use kind of the balance wheel idea. And then I realized, "Eh, maybe it's not, Balance. Maybe there is no balance. Maybe it's really energy management. So everything in the universe is built off energy, right? And so we know we can tap into this energy. So I said, one of the things that seems to wane as we age is our energy. So what are the things I do? What are the people I spend time with? What are the books I read? How do I get up in the morning? I want to do things that give me energy and I want to slowly get rid of things that take energy away. And so I would say that my book and myself is on a self-transformation, a 10-year self-transformation to slowly get all the energy drainers out of my life and attract more energy givers. And I share that because, again, as we age, our energy does start to wane. And so I want to be more judicious where I can spend it. And in presentations, I talk about that. When I was 20 and worked at IBM, I remember, and IBM was, it was a really tough company to get in sales You needed a minimum of 90% passing grade on all the internal sales training. So when I was an IBM salesperson, they trained us for 12 months. And in that 12 months, if you didn't achieve 90%, you were let go. You lost your job. So there was a lot of anxiety in all these people going through the training. Yet some of us still did the all-nighters. We went, we got done for the day's training. Maybe it was like a Thursday night. And then we went out and did like an all-nighter and we came in at 4 a.m. all hungover and stuff. And then at eight o'clock, we're at, you know, doing our sales calls and all this stuff with our trainers. And uh, I could do that. I could get away with that. I had that kind of, I had like ridiculous amount of energy. I was foolish with it. I don't have that kind of energy today. And so what are the practices in my life plan that attract and give me energy? And how do I get rid of energy? So that was essentially the the nucleus of this book is that we're entering this period of disruption there's a group of us who don't necessarily want to, quote, unquote, retire. We're not used parts that need to be cast to the side. And I'll even take a, a personal journey on that is that I watched my father, and I use him in my presentation, is that he um, he was the first in this, he, he served in World War II. He was the first in his family to get a college education. He worked 37 years for the same company, going from a draftsman all the way to st- president of the company so he had a great career path he put all three of his kids through college we didn't have to pay for college he picked it up so we were all launched successfully in life and he inherited nothing from his family but was able to save a little over three million dollars at the time of his retirement just from being very frugal He was good scott and um so he had done everything right he had the career he had the kids launched he could now enjoy his retirement and yet within just a few years i would call him and say dad so how's it going what are you doing i'm surviving that was what he would say on the phone i'm Mm. surviving and it wasn't that he didn't visit his grandkids he did and it wasn't that he didn't travel he did but this i'm surviving statement which i really kind of said you got to stop saying that um did kind of set the tone for his his retirement. He was just a shell of that former leader that I had seen. And I would suggest, well, why don't you engage in this and that and so on? Well, I can't do that anymore. You know, he'd, he'd lost that sort of spark. Um, so I said, I do not want to follow that path. I have a client right now. Uh, he's in, he's uh, in Grosse Pointe. His home was on Lake St. Clair. So we all know what that area looks like sold his company for a gajillion dollars. He has a home in Florida, a home here. He's got boats. He's in great health. His wife and he are happy. His kids are all successful. Um, but he has anxiety from eight to five every day. And by the way, he doesn't have anxiety on vacations. He doesn't have anxiety on the weekends. But in those hours that he used to work, he has anxiety. So we created a legacy map for him. And, um, that's one of the challenges. He was going. He's seventy-five. He would. He often says, "I wish I never sold my company. I was so happy running that business, and I miss all those people and so on." So, I'm not suggesting that we work like workaholics all our lives, and I'm not suggesting we don't sell our companies or whatever the particular things we're working on. I'm just saying that you should you should be intentional about your life and have a design for what does that ideal look like? What does it look like 10 years hence? And how are you contributing the way that you choose to contribute with the people you choose to contribute? And by the way, I even have a push-pull on that here I am, I authored this book and we've got replaced retirement and we're we're reaching out to the public and pursuing customers and all the things you do with a business. And yet I take the month of August off and I take the month of February off. My business partner, my CFO and COO understands that. And I'm like, I wrote a book on this stuff. So I'm not going to not enjoy my life, but I want to have this balance. So even our business has to modify and adjust to this lifestyle, if you will, um, so that it's full and complete. Because I don't want to finish, right? We see that happen too, where I work, 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 and then I realize, oh, I didn't spend enough time with important relationships in my life. And that's what August is. August at the cottage is all family coming up and spending time there. And again, there's no there's no rush. There's no agendas. It's just chime time to be together um so those are all things that i designed into my plan but everybody has their own plan and and uh my partner by the way he he was great he got involved in this and he went from um kind of working out sometime to then becoming start running then he decided that he wanted to run a race so he ran you know the free press marathon or whatever which was the longest Marathon he ever did and qualified for the Boston Marathon. So now he's training to, get, to do the Boston Marathon. So these are, these are things that give him energy and these are goals that he never thought he could accomplish, right? They, well, wouldn't it be nice if I had the time? So he's designed his life to have the time to do this thing that makes him healthy and hang out with others that he wants to spend time with, doing the things he wants to enjoy. So it is a retirement of sorts, but it's not the paradigm we were accustomed to.
1: And you said it, right? It's on your terms. It's on yes. your own terms. And it's not an either or decision. I think that we you know, we often think that either I'm working full tilt, full time, whether it's running a business, running a department, whatever it is, or I'm not, or I'm retired. It's not an either or decision. You can design your life and your retirement to be on your terms the way that you want it of course, there's a financial element to that. And this is a decision that, as you know, I faced two years ago when I made a decision. I'm a single mom with a house, with a mortgage in Birmingham. And again, we know what that is, right? And I made the decision to end my corporate career because it was not it was draining me. You talk about energy, the things that give you energy and the things that drain the energy out of you. It was draining the energy out of you. What gives me energy is standing on stage, inspiring a group of people to feel good about themselves and the potential that they have. I'm in a complete state of flow. But back to the reality, how do you support yourself you know, to do the things that you love? So I made the tough choice. And I said, okay, I'm going to take my income to zero overnight by design, because I believe I have this bone deep commitment in myself that I will make this work. And, and you have to have that. If you're going to walk away from the model or from the money, you've got to know, you've got to be very comfortable with the decision that you're making and make it, but to the way we started this podcast. You have to have a vision. You have to have a vision that's pulling you. That's just, and it pulls me. You know, I'm going toward it every single day. And honestly, John, I think it gets stronger every day. And a a lot of people don't have that vision for their lives, but this is the time to create one. This is a perfect time to sit back and look at where you're going in your life and recreate that retirement model. And your book, some of the things I loved about your book, you talk about. There's a need, there's a need for seasoned, experienced people in the workplace, but engage with the workplace on your terms.
2: I, I I agree with that. And I would add on a couple thoughts that you sparked. One is that in the book, I talk about this idea that there was sort of two drivers to this. One is that I was with a friend actually at my cottage, you know, on an August break and He was complaining. I don't know if he was complaining, but he was talking about his either his children or someone else's, and you know that old line. You know what's wrong with kids today is X. And I kind of laughed and I said, "Oh my God, we sound like our parents, right? I mean, like we've we've rolled into this position." And. So one of the things I made the decision is that I don't want to be that guy. I'm not going to be the one who complains about everything that's wrong in the world. I'm going to go out and do something to make the world a better place. And I do that for, one, the obvious reason is I'm kind of a glass half full versus glass half empty. But I wanted to do it, one of the things that's kind of interesting, I'm remarried, and my my stepchildren, my daughter says, you got to go to dinner with my stepfather because it's like going and having a Ted talk. Now that's the way young people should describe you. Not that, Oh, he's that complaining old and commision. Right. And, uh, and so that was kind of a driver, and the other one is that in my first marriage, I mentioned way back in the beginning of this that uh, my father-in-law helped me in sort of getting into business because they were successful entrepreneurs. And one of the things that was beneficial in that marriage, and there was a number of things, and I love—I I still love my ex-wife, and we're very close. We we talk weekly. Um, we sometimes spend holidays together. She's still the executor of my will. That gives you sort of the, the closeness we have, right? Because I was calling up and I'm like, you know, I don't think my kids need as much of this and I'd like to get more to, my, to Molly, my current wife. I, I'm married for the second time. And um, and this is what I'm talking with my ex-wife about and she agreed. She's like, yeah, our kids are set up and you probably should. I mean, that that's the kind of relationship we have, okay? So we're very close. One of the guys that I really appreciate is Chip Connolly. And Chip's writing a lot about modern elders and so on. But years ago, this, is, this was at the EO 20th anniversary in Las Vegas. He presented a book he had just written called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. And I loved it because he took Maslow's hierarchy, which is five levels down to three levels. And he, he called it kind of job, career, and calling. And so, I started using that in my business coaching. Because there's the, the, um, Jeffrey Smart talks about there's A players. So, if I walk into a room of of six leaders, let's use 10 because math works better. And I said uh, to all 10, how many of you in this room are A players? Every hand's going to go up. Well, from a statistical standpoint, that can't happen. You know, if you look at the statistics, you're going to have two that are, you're going to have two that are A's, you're going to have six that are B's, and you're going to have two that are C's statistically in that room of leaders. Fair enough? Because some are going to be really high performers. And, now, in another organization, the C's might be in A's, but in that group, so there's a statistical rule that's happening all the time. So I change it, and I walk in, I say, how many of this is your career? Everybody hands go up. How many of you in this room is this your calling? Well, no hands go up. Or maybe the owner's hands go up. And certainly my hand goes up. So recently, Chip was sharing on one of his uh, podcasts, he was talking about this book. Again, he wrote, I don't know, 15 years ago. Um, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Emotional from Maslow And he, he took those three and he said, the bottom is uh, survival, the middle is success, and the top is self-transformation. So this is, that, and that spoke to what I was getting at all along is that i believe that what you went through or are going through is self-transformation you said i i i got past the survival thing i'm not worried that i'm not going to survive right and i did the success thing but i found that it was still wanting and now i'm going for the self-transformation thing so maslow said that was a normal hierarchy of needs same thing for me right i went from survival to then marrying into this great success. I had wealth beyond all measure, and I'm now I'm ready to go for self-transformation. I'm gonna step away from the security of that world into one of self-transformation. You and I through like errors or or stupidity, some may say, have stepped into self-transformation. But this goes back to our exponential age. I think we're all into self-transformation, meaning that we are contemporaries if they want to raise their hand. I understand that some are in survival mode and I respect that and I, and I, and I, I empathize with that. But our audience that are listening to us are really kind of success, which is a little bit of a question right now, So now self-transformation. What would it take to transform yourself so that you're comfortable, that you don't worry that I can't put food on the table, that I can't survive in whatever the world throws me? You feel that way and I feel that way. And we understand. You just gotta go out and create tremendous value. Now, it may take more work to do the value and then, boy, you better be getting energy from it because what's the point in working to death and not getting like then you've ruined it you missed the whole point of the thing like okay so i i'll do this uh i did this on another podcast i'll try it here um so this is a story or a a metaphor i share with people and so i'm going to take a chance on this i'll be vulnerable so um so I'm, I've shared with you, I'm, I'm certainly a spiritual person and I, uh, and I believe in, in God. And, uh, so I'll use that as kind of the framework. So you, you, you die and you go to heaven or, or wherever you go. It, it, you pick your place and, and you're sitting there with, with this greater power or God, whatever you want to call it. And he's like, uh, John, we're going to do a review of your life right now because that's kind of the story we hear, right? And uh, and it's like, no, I'd rather not look at my life. I don't want to see the whole thing. I, I get it that you got to watch this movie real, but can we just like skip it because there's lots of parts that are embarrassing and I don't want to see again. And he's like, no, 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 we're going to watch the whole thing. You're going to really enjoy it. I'm like, I really, this is, I don't want to do this. And he's like, you got to trust me on this. And, and he said, but before we do that, we're going to do it. But before we do that, I want you to look over to the right here. And there's this huge tapestry, okay, like, like we see in Europe, right, in some castle. This beautiful, huge tapestry on the wall. And he said, look at that tapestry for a minute and tell me what you think. And you look at it and you start to weep. It's the most beautiful thing you've seen in your entire life. And you're you're really choked up. I mean you're emotional and you're not even sure why you're crying. It's just like, oh my god, this is the most beautiful thing. And he's like, it, it really is, isn't it? And I'm like, Yeah, I just like I'm just I'm sorry. I'm like speechless. This is it's so beautiful. I don't think I've ever seen anything in all my years that was that beautiful. And he said, That's your life. Now you really lose it. You're like, you're just you're like, you're like a wreck, right? that's not my life. No, that's your life. That's how beautiful your life is. And so you finally get your composure back and he and he, he gets up and he said let me explain this to you. He said you see all the different colors and that yeah that's why I was that's why I was weeping it's so beautiful. He said it really is. Isn't it beautiful? See from your vantage point you couldn't see the whole picture but I could I could see the tapestry unfolding I knew what it was going to look like it is beautiful. So it, now you get to sort of see it. And um, but he see he said you see that that purple section over on the right there and you're like yeah that's i was looking at that it really makes the whole thing like punch that color and and he's like it does doesn't it and he and you see the gold thread going through the purple it really stands out yeah that's like that's stunning and he's like and it would look really good with just the purple do you agree oh yeah but the gold really kind of gives it that that final touch and yeah and he said that gold part that was that really scary difficult horrible time you were going through and you were questioning, why do I got to go through this? Why is this happening now? Don't you love me and care for me? And you were all in a panic and I saw you going through that, but you persevered anyway. You, you just kept staying with it and so on. And now from this perspective, you can see how it all comes together. So I use that example because that's how I view life is that every day we're like weaving that tapestry and no matter how you weave it, it's going to be beautiful. So you don't need to worry about that. But now you're weaving the gold sections. You're getting into these little minute things that really make the whole thing punch out. And so that was my idea of replacing retirement is that why not do that for your entire life? Do it for yourself do it for your children and do it for your grandchildren, so that when the day comes that you leave this earth, they're like, you know what, my dad or my mother, they were they were like creating their whole life. They were always reinventing themselves. They were always trying new things. They were always taking on risks. My wife is upstairs working for me right now. She's getting her doctorate in her fifties because she went through the legacy map process. She said, I always like to get my doctorate. Now there are plenty of days she wants to quit, and I and I always ask her, well. Think of what you're saying to your children. The fact that you went back to school is like the coolest thing. It's so, they're so impressed by it. I'm impressed by it. My ex-wife is impressed by it. Everybody is. I mean, it's really amazing that she's going back in her doctorate. And so you can choose not to do that. But boy, if you do it, just think of the legacy you leave your kids. It's like my mother had the courage to do this. And I maybe have that courage too. And so that's how I'm living my life. That's how you're living your life. And we're looking for others who want to do the same thing. It's like we can, we can either complain about the world and the challenges we're going through or we can do something to make the world a better place and have fun doing it. Again, it's, it's your tapestry. You can sew it. You can design it whatever way you want. I think we all have beautiful lives and we're all beautiful people. But what, what's left in us? What else can we do? And as I mentioned before with my snowmobiling, it's not that I don't do fun things too, I do. It's just that I don't want to snowmobile all the time. I don't want to golf all the time. Like I, I just, that traditional idea of retirement of just stopping one day doesn't work. I'll add another experience that's happened in the last couple of weeks. I was in the shower and it was kind of relating. I'm like, boy, this is what retirement could feel feel like that you've stopped going to the office and now you got all this time at home. Now, if I didn't have all these practices and ways to start my days and things to contribute and so on, I'd have a lot of time on my hand and I'd be a little bit like, well, what do I do with it? Um, But I don't have that problem because I got a full plan. This is is not disrupting to me. And to your point, I actually see it as an opportunity. It's like a little window. People are getting the taste. Hmm. Maybe this retirement thing, maybe staying home all the time and not having like necessarily to get up at the same time I used to get up and so on is necessarily going to be what I want. Like, I don't know. I like parts of it. It's nice to be with my wife every day. It's nice to take the dog for a walk each evening. Those parts I'm enjoying. But what about all the stuff in the middle? And so in in my case, because I already had this plan and structure and path to follow, I feel like I'm still on plan. nothing's changed and um until that's a piece. The other thing on the you know I think that wisdom for our our age group is that you know we went through the recession we uh we had the recessions in the eighties and the, the you know the dot com bust in the early nineties. I mean, this isn't our first rodeo and and um in the last downturn the the two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I actually had my greatest growth. Um so I was I I I realized that all see I've I've never had a contract with a client. So all my agreements are verbal. So every client I have today is a verbal agreement. There's no reason they can't call me up this afternoon and say, John, you know, we got a cash crunch and so on. We're, we're here like a really easy line to drop off. So we're just going to discontinue to work. So I'm in that situation today and I was in that situation in uh, 2007, 2008. So what I did in that particular case is I went back and I said, you know, I'm charging you X dollars today. I'm willing to cut that number in half But I'm going to come in 12 times a year because at that time, I was coming in five times a year. I'd do a two-day annual and then meet every quarter. Instead of coming in on this quarterly basis, I'm going to come in every month but I'm going to knock the number in half. So in reality, I was making more money in a year, but they were getting a much more rate and seeing more, more of me. So they saw the value and saying, okay, yeah, that's nice. John's taking a hit with the rest of us. He's reducing his rate. He's going to spend a lot more time with us. And yes, at the end of the year, they were actually spending more money, but they felt there was enough value in that that, that was worth keeping on rather than discontinuing. I think like seven clients immediately went for that, like in a real big shift. So I had my biggest growth year in the worst year in the economy. And um, and that's when the, the legacy map I use now evolved. It was called a success map at the time. And I created it for the owners for the same reason. I wanted them to have a tool so they could deal with the, the anxiety and the fear and all that, that they had their plan to launch their day, to know where they're going and why they're going and the vision and so on. And so the tool evolved out of that time. And then later, one of my clients said, well, I'm not interested in success anymore. I'm interested in my legacy. And so we, we called it the legacy map. And then eventually that led to the book and and where I am today.
1: I love the legacy map because it's visual and I'm a very visual person and it forces clarity of thought. It forces you to put down your life plan on a piece of paper and really think through all facets of that and all the people who are involved in your life. One thing it did for me, John, um, When I, as I thought about health, personal health and where I wanted to be when I'm 80 and 90, I wanted to be this, I have this image in my head of this really fit, trim 80 year old, right? Who's got this, um, the same haircut, only it's silver gray, right? Yeah. The same body form. And what that did for me when I started to think about that, and then I was working out At the time I was working out at Equinox and I would see from the the treadmills, I could see a mirror, the other side of the gym. And I would look in that mirror and I would visualize the 80 and 90 year old me on that treadmill. And what your book taught me was to say, okay, if I can visualize what this picture looks like, that means that I better be hammering it out on that treadmill right now in order to get to that, that, uh, physical condition that I see for myself in my eighties. And it was very, very powerful. So if people have not, you know, not familiar with this idea of a legacy map, I would highly recommend the book. And if you do nothing else, draw a legacy map for your life, because now is the time. Now is the time where we say, okay, you need to get off the treadmill and then take a step back and look at your life so you can project forward. We've all been forced to get off the normal treadmill living. It's It's been forced upon us, whether you want to or not. So you can look at this as an opportunity to develop a vision or legacy map for your business, for your team, and for your life. Or you can let this opportunity go by. And my message would be, please don't let this opportunity go by because it is an opportunity. And, you know, you have also supported that fact that you've been through a bad situation. You turned it around, you made progress and, you know, you've gone nowhere but up since then. So with that, John, how would you like to close? What would be your message to our audience today?
2: Well, you did such a nice job of it. Uh, I think I'll just piggyback on your comments. Is It is an opportunity, and maybe even more importantly, back on my sort of uh, transitioning from a linear age to an exponential age, is that there's no, if you're going to be successful in the future as a leader and an entrepreneur, again, not as a follower, but as a leader, then you have to lead with confidence and courage and all the things that we've seen in leaders throughout the decades. And um, now's the time, to your point, to step up and do it. The tools are there. The resources are there. We're here to help. There's so many resources. We've never been in a world that didn't offer so many resources. I'm not the only one in this game. Um, but yeah, it's there's, it's there's it, it, this is the requirement. I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I wouldn't... I would be, I don't want to be in survival mode. I, I mean, it's just like, that's, I don't think in those terms. Imagine if I was leading others and I was thinking that way, it would, it just wouldn't be healthy. And I'll share with, I was coaching a client um, just last week. Yeah, because it was Monday. And, and he's allowed to kind of whine with me on the phone. Obviously that's part of our role but he was doing kind of his good news check-in and he was sharing the good things, right? Cause we always start off with good stuff. And then he was sharing and I could, he was, he was a little pissed off a little bit. Like, he's like, I'm working on putting this big deal together and I feel like I'm doing all the work and everybody else is kind of riding my coattails. And that was justifiable. And I had empathy because I remember being in that situation too. He's in his, in his thirties. So he's really working hard and he really is building something. And my comment to him is that I, I empathize with you and I get it. But, um, that, that tone doesn't serve the person I see in you, that you're like this amazing leader. I wouldn't invest the I wouldn't invest the time in you if you weren't an amazing leader. So we need to kind of get that out of your, we're going to get that tone out of your language. Um, and I'll help you with that. I'll be your, your feedback and sounding guide. So, there was that one, and then uh, I was skiing with some guys um, just just before we had the whole kind of clamp down. We managed to get back in time uh, before they closed the ski areas. But I was with a friend, and he was saying, um, "Boy, this is like being at a spa because we were skiing, we were eating healthy, and we we're having these really uh, compelling conversations." And that's why I was calling spas like everything here is healthy. And so that's the other thing that I'm big on is that. Once you go on this journey, you're just, it's like you and I got connected, right, through somebody else. You start to change the whole world and circle you're in where I don't really hang around with people who are negative. I only hang around people who are out there creating value and making the world a better place. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's back to the the, uh, tapestry. Is that you know you're just one more element in this tapestry, and I'm one more element in yours. Um, so there is a it, it, what they called it the law of attraction, right? So we're attracting into our world those things that are designed to our vision. Our vision's coming true, not exactly the way we want. You know, it's not a straight road, um, but it's but it's happening, and uh, so please join us on this journey um, if this, if this reaches out and calls to you. Um, And if not, then, you know, God bless you and and take care of your family and your, and your friends and your employees and, and whoever's in your world. And uh, and I empathize because I have been there. I've been in that fearful spot. I've, you know, I'm a, a former addict. So I know what it's like to be, pulled down by all the dark forces. Um, and uh, and I choose today not the that's not the path or the vision I have for myself, uh, just like you. So join us on this. All right.
1: Beautifully said. John Anderson, thank you very much for your time. And let's, everybody, let's make this the most exciting and exhilarating leadership time of our lives. Thank you.
0: Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your Gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at GravitasDetroit.com to find out more.